This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by See It. See It is a simple way to start keeping track of all your favorite TV shows. It's always with you on your laptop, tablet, and phone. Visit see.it slash vulture and start adding shows to your personal watch list today. Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. This week, Matt is joined by Clive Owen, star of The Nick. We'll also answer some of our favorite questions from listeners that we never made it to this year. That's coming up, but first, we want more of your questions for 2016. Leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hi, guys. Hi. So, listeners out there, we want you to know we haven't been ignoring you, <laughs> and we love you, and appreciate <laughs> Come all. Back. Come back. <laughs> we appreciate all your questions, and you know we're gonna try to answer some of them today. Yeah, I will also <laughs> say one of our like common response to some of these questions has been like, "Oh, we should do a whole episode about yeah. that." <laughs> so, if your question didn't make it into this week's, it's not because we didn't find it worthy. It might be because we found it almost too, too worthy. worthy. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So first up, we have a question from Paul. Does it matter if a program shows an event or a person in 100% historical accuracy, or is it acceptable to portray something that didn't necessarily happen, like a conversation or specific event in a historical figure's life, if it still conveys an accurate feeling or mood and doesn't necessarily change the intent if it does change what actually happened? I would say it depends. It depends on what the intent of the piece is. Um, is the intent to represent the past in a very meticulously detailed, accurate way? Like, is accuracy the purpose of this thing? Or are you trying to make a point about the past, make a statement about the past? And is it an imaginative response to the past? Um, a lot of Shakespeare's plays were based on actual events, but they bear almost no relation to what actually happened, and it doesn't seem to bother us. But we apply more recent history to a much more strict standard, which is something I've never entirely understood. I think sometimes shows, and this is probably true for movies and books and other kinds of artwork. I just am more conversant in shows. I think sometimes there's the hook of like, can you believe this really happened? And if that's sort of the genesis of your show, then I think accuracy is incredibly important because the the whole point of it is to be amazed by something that is true. I think shows like Masters of Sex, where we have like a loose adaptation of history, some of it totally true to their lives, a lot of it not. I think that's fine because the point of that show is not, can you believe this happened? But rather like, what does the publicizing of American sexual identity entail? Right. And, and I think there's a lot of ways to look at that, a lot of ways to explore it. I think a show like Deadwood, we have this mix of, yes, these are... Th- like some of these people are real people who really existed, some of them not. Some of these are things that really happened, others, you know, less so. I don't think anyone thinks that the dialogue on Deadwood is 
a one-to-one representation of how people spoke. You mentioned Masters of Sex, and one criticism I heard of it this year was that if it had stuck to what had actually happened more and focused on kind of the historical details, it would have been more interesting. Yeah. So that's like... That's one thing where right. so it's the like your problem on Masters of Sex is not that they fudged history; it's that they made boring storytelling right. choices. And you mentioned mm. this also, I remember in your review of Aquarius, I believe, about you know why don't you just tell the story of Charles Manson, which is in and of itself more interesting than straying from it. I don't know, maybe tell a slightly different story that you think will be more dramatic. I mean, I think Aquarius is an example where we took one of the most like genuinely riveting true stories and figured out a way to make that the side story of like some guy. Right. I was like, what the hell? Like, how do you stare at that? Like, uh, you know, I guess like those Manson murders. Mm, let's make like a sad cop. And he's like, sad. It's like, I, like, what the hell is that? Like, how could you possibly make that as your choice? Like, that's crazy to me. And so like on Masters That was actually the working title was sad cop. <laughs> I honestly would believe that. Um, it's like, does he drink? Boy, does he. Like, does he have ladies? Too many to count. What does he drive? What doesn't he drive? <laughs> Hand him a guitar. There's a fucking guitar in that show. Like, that show is a dumpster fire. Um, I think on Master of Sex, you know, we had, like, they introduced the idea that Virginia had another baby. Not historically true. Okay, like, that could have been interesting, but instead it just was, like, a non-starter. And so there's, like, like the problem on Master of Sex is not deviation from history. It's that the chosen deviations are themselves just not very interesting. Yeah, I had that issue with um, a lot of Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> which was, which was, you know, not the only issue I had with that show, but but th- there was a mix of uh, actual people, like uh, Nucky Thompson was based on a real guy, Al Capone, people like that, and these fictional characters who were brought in. But my problem with that was they were so excited to have Al Capone on the show that I don't think they ever quite figured out what he was doing there. And there were a lot of characters who fit that description. So there, it's a question of just. Having access to the historical material, and you're you, you know you're entitled to use it as realistically or unrealistically as you want, as long as you keep me interested. I also think the standards depend on how famous these historical figures are. So things that are loosely based on, or even closely based on, non-famous people, I think are a different standard than like, oh, how should Wolf Hall be? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think there's mm-hmm. all kinds of different ways that we have that make sense in terms of storytelling for or, or about, you know, very famous stories or well-known stories where part of the storytelling is your knowledge of actual historical events being contrasted with how the show is portraying them. And that being an occasional source of interesting drama on something like maybe the Tudors. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Like, it's possible to use... Th- that as a tool, that creating that dramatic tension and that dramatic space and having some of your show live within your depiction of events versus the understood series of events in the popular imagination. Like, I think there's room there for good shows. I also think basically all of this can be done in any way as long as it's really good. You'd yes. be like, okay, sure. Like, if the show's good enough, like, I, it doesn't matter to me. Right. Because well, we're watching television. Yes. There yes. is a suspension of disbelief. You go into it knowing you're not going to get everything like you're reading a textbook. Well, and it's not, you know, drama is not history. Yes. It's just not. And I, and I actually tend to give the benefit of the doubt to the, to the to filmmakers or the storytellers when they're dealing with history because it is, the onus is 
on them to make it watchable and and challenging and fun and interesting and not so much just, you know, if I want an accurate representation of, of what actually happened, I'll seek out a good documentary or nonfiction book. That's not what drama is for. And I do get very, very tired of these these quote-unquote think pieces that appear that are like, what movie or television show X gets wrong about historical subject Y? And that's like, you know, I would like for there to be an explanation of why it was bad for them not to get every single detail right than simply just point out, that's not what happened, <laughs> you know. Next, we have a question from Rosa. I'd love to get your thoughts on a theory of mine, that movies and TV shows are becoming increasingly indistinguishable to the point where one day they won't even be seen as separate mediums. Seasons of TV shows are getting shorter while the shared universe concept is making more movie narratives longer and more episodic. To use an extreme example, I don't see much difference between Sherlock with its three 90-minute episodes per season and the Iron Man films. I think binge-watching has contributed to this, as the experience of doing it is pretty much like watching a long movie. Also, TV creators who expect their work to be binged can bypass some of the hallmarks of episodic television. The logistics of consuming both are frequently the same for most people. We watch movies on our phones and go to movie theaters to watch the finale of Breaking Bad. Well, I actually had an experience that is exactly that. When Breaking Bad was coming into its final season, I saw, um, I went and watched um, several episodes of it. They were running the entire, all five seasons of Breaking Bad at Lincoln Center Film Society. And uh, it felt like a movie. It felt Mm -hmm. like it was up there in a big screen. The audience was into it. And it even seemed timed in a way to allow for people to laugh or gasp. You know, it was very, it was a very, it was a great, it was a cinematic show anyway, but that was really driven home by seeing it with an audience of about 400 people. I think with, as Rosa mentioned, with the binge watching model, that affects how creators are also creating these shows. Jill Soloway, in an interview with us, mentioned how she thinks of her show as, you know, the first two episodes is the rising action and the final episode is the falling action and everything in between kind of fits into that. And... You know, it kind of frames the way you think about it. And I think we we talked about this a little bit with Bloodline towards the beginning of the year and how the creators had thought of it as making one just 10-hour piece of work and how that was kind of problematic in some ways because 10 hours is not necessarily – you don't necessarily need 10 hours of watching this drama unfold. No. No, that's true. And 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 there's also I'm intrigued by how many different ways you can split up that time. Like whatever time you're given for a season, and some people do prefer to think of it as one co- concrete interlocking story unit. And other shows seem to be devised so that you can experience it that way, but you can also experience it in chapters and not feel like you're frustrated by having to bail out of the story to go to sleep. Right. And then there's still others like, the, you know, the third and final season of Hannibal was basically two seasons. And the first half was Hannibal's bloody adventures in Florence. And the second half was a retelling of uh, the of Red Dragon. So you kind of got a twofer. I, always, I, I almost feel like there were four seasons of that show. Yeah. And the last two were short. I mean, Master of None did a good job of what you mentioned, which is kind of having working on two levels where you can enjoy it episodically, but you can also, there's also a larger narrative going throughout. The season before last of Louis actually offered, I think it was almost like the equivalent of three feature length films that happened to be broken into pieces. So there's a, there's a lot of ways to skin this cat. It's really interesting. But the point about the movies is a good one. 
absolutely the Marvel films have learned a lot from television, but they've also learned a lot from comic books. And I would say that television has learned a lot from comic books in ways that I don't think has been properly appreciated. Mm. There's a lot of overlap, not just in this idea of, you know, keeping a story going over a long period of time and um, teasing, you know, breaking it into different size pieces depending on what the needs of the story are. But also this idea of interlocking universes, you know, where things, different shows can be part of the same shared universe. And the Star Wars movies are clearly trying to do that now because we have this main, this main story involving presumably the Skywalker family and their descendants in the next three films. And then in between them, there are going to be these, I guess, standalone films that might be set in that time or might be set earlier. Movies and TV are not going to become one another. I think what's happening and I think what we're all talking about is this zone in between that is getting there's more things going into that zone but I think you know I don't think you could watch all of girls and be like that's actually really more like a movie or like you know several episodes of Modern Family or something right like that is fundamentally a television show and I think even shows that you binge like House of Cards I don't walk away from House of Cards being like you know it's sort of like a one long movie like it's not and I think the way that we approach television, whether it's designed to be marathoned or not, is still something different. I think then when we have the example of Sherlock, this is what we're talking about, is this like zone in between what we would typically think of as strict episodic television, because we're talking 90 minutes. That's not a traditional television format. The episodes, while connected to each other, don't follow piece by piece. Like They're much more self-contained. I think it would be easy to describe those Sherlock episodes as movies, certainly. And that's more of a British model anyway. I was going to say, you know, Alan Partridge being my favorite example of that, like Steve Coogan's character appeared in many, many, many different incarnations. And there was, you know, there was kind of a, there was a radio program, there was a straightforward sitcom, there was a sort of Larry Sanders type sitcom where you were alternating behind the scenes and things that were occurring on camera. There was one that was only done on camera. And then uh, a couple of years ago, they had a movie. They had a self-contained, you know, 90-minute movie Mm -hmm. that you could uh, stream on Amazon or wherever it appeared. And I also think, you know, it feels like every movie is part of a franchise, and I certainly am sympathetic to that frustration. Uh, So that's false, right? Like, there's lots of movies that are not parts of franchises, and certainly plenty of excellent movies continue to emerge that are not tied to some greater cinematic universe. So what's happening is we're getting, we're still going to have sort of both sides of that curve. We're going to have super, super episodic television. We're going to have super, super standalone movies. And they don't have anything in common. They don't seem alike. But what we're getting is more movies that feel like they have TV influence and more TV shows that feel like they have uh, movie structure influence. And, and we're getting more of those. And, you know, that's that's neither good nor bad. That simply is a thing that happens. And some of those movies and TV shows will be stinky piles of garbage. And some of them will be great. And I don't think there's a, there's not like a, oh, things that are like this are inherently going to be more interesting or less interesting. It's always going to come down to like, well, did they do a good job of letting form follow function? Was this Mm. the right amount of story for this amount of time? Was this the right style of story for this kind of idea? Did we want more? Does this feel like the idea has reached its natural conclusion? Is this something where we're going to put the thing in the pond and watch all the circles go forever? Or is this a fish tank and we want to just see what's in there? You know, like there's lots and lots of ways to tell lots of kinds of stories. It's exciting to know that there's more options available, more formats available, that if you have a really good idea and it's like it's about four hours worth of stuff that we can say, okay, well, there's probably some way to do that that we would all want to watch. I will say also that uh, as far as form goes, um, the 
the Marvel movies, I beat up on them a lot because they um, often feel more covered than directed. Like it feels like they're just, you know, they know what happens in the story and they're shooting a lot of, they're shooting the action with multiple cameras and cutting it, uh, cutting it together in a way that is superficially exciting. But I don't see a whole lot of art there. Once in a great while I do. But then you look at something like Jessica Jones, which is also in the Marvel universe, and that feels like cinema to me. Like the choices that they are making with the way that they set up a scene, the way they direct a scene, they're much subtler. They require more of your attention. They require, they require your eyes to look around the screen to understand what's happening and why they're showing it to you that way. And so it's weird, and I'm seeing more and more examples of this where I feel like cinema and television are changing places. I'm seeing many more things in theaters that feel like television to me in the pejorative sense and, and more things on television that feel like movies in the best sense. I would like us to stop thinking movie good, TV bad. And I know, uh, look, I obviously don't think Matt thinks TV is bad. But what I mean is... I should certainly hope not. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, like, you had, you picked a really <laughs> the weird The last 20 years bad. of my life have been a lie, a lie! No, but I think, you know, people are like, oh, TV's so good now. It's almost like it's a movie. And it's like, yeah. what? Fuck movies. Like, <laughs> like why? what does that mean? Like, oh, it ha- like that's the only good thing. Like, everything else is trash, but not movies. It's like, lots of movies are trash. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, that that model or like that praise, it's like, oh, it's so good. It's like a book. It's like, well, there's yeah. lots of really good books and lots of really terrible books. Like, there's not an inherent artistic value to a medium. Oh, certainly not. And I, and I only bring that up in terms of just, you know, what's on the screen like what's in the frame and what's out. And when I use a, a word like cinematic, I'm, not, I'm certainly not trying to suggest that what you see in a theater is inherently better. But just a cinema to me means something where they put a little thought into why they're showing you things and the way that they're showing it to you. And, and very, very often on television and movies, I don't see that. I don't mm-hmm. see that. I see them figuring out what is my story and who are my characters, and then they point the camera at them while they say stuff. And that to me is not interesting. I think we can certainly agree that the aesthetics of TV storytelling have continued to develop. Yeah. And and film came, film came first. It did. It has a, it has a, <laughs> it has 50, a little jump it, start. It has a 50-year head start. Yeah. And also, you know, I think we talked about this on our What is Cinematic Television episode earlier this year. I'm like, oh, I feel like we've talked about this. <laughs> we, we have. have. We have. Um, so go revisit yeah. that if you'd like to hear us talk more. <laughs> 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 Next, we have a question from Jacqueline. What makes a good voiceover? Are there any shows in particular that you think use this device most or least effectively or in the most original way? So I think right now Jane the Virgin is pretty high on that list. I don't know that I call it a voiceover so much as I call it a narrator because what he's saying mm-hmm. is not known to the character. So narrator, I would put you know, a show like Arrested Development in there and I would contrast that with something like Veronica Mars or Mr. Robot where the person talking is one of the characters on the show and for those kinds of voiceovers to work I think it's really important that it be conveying information that we cannot get in another way that this is the most interesting way to tell the story so on Mr. Robot I think uses this very well which is to show us things that Elliot is thinking and and we're learning about his interior thoughts in a way that he's not expressing through acting because he's performing this sort of blankness for other characters in the show. For Veronica Mars, she has secrets and she tells them in her voiceover that she wouldn't say to other people in her life, even people very close to her. So I hate when you hear voiceover on a show that's like, yes, I, I already knew that. Yeah. Right? Where right. someone's like, I couldn't believe he said it. It's like, well, 
make a face. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like, feel yeah. free to act through these or ideas. Or when they're using it, and I see it a lot in pilots, like voiceover oh, that appears boy. in a pilot and then it never shows up again. It, and it's just there to, like, dump information on you so they don't have to come up with an interesting, organic okay. way to tell it to you one visually. Of, one of the best things Fresh Off the Boat did in its second season was dropping the voiceover. Yeah. And I totally agree. Uh, Jane the Virgin is kind of an anomaly because the narrator is almost like an extra character. But this year I've really I I've liked a few examples of when they add kind of an extra layer of your understanding of what's happening and that one of them is Fargo in episode 9 which was the penultimate episode. Mm-hmm. You, I think it's Martin Freeman who's doing yeah, the voiceover, it is, yes. which is like a, he, like a second. Yeah, right? you're like I know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh Fargo reunion yeah. <laughs> on Fargo still, and he's telling you, you know, he's telling you what's uh, like kind of more about the character Hanzi, who is the Native American character who has been silent for pretty much almost all of the season. And I mean, he's he's also saying other things, but I loved it when he was kind of telling you more about this character that just adds so much to your understanding of him. And then another one that sticks out is Transparent, also in the second season. Gabby Hoffman's character, Allie, is reciting a poem, and it's over a scene in a bar, and it's just, it's it's not quite a conventional voiceover, but it's more, you know, this is a way of adding, it just adds poetry to the scene. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so she, it's not just to herself, right? It, no. In the context of the episode, she's like, oh, I read this really great poem. Let me tell, like, let me read it to you guys. And then it's set as part of a montage at this sort of, like, lesbian gathering at a bowling alley. Um, yes. And that's really... And that's just kind of this moment where she's kind of realizing, you know, she's feels at home. She feels like this, she's found a space that understands her. And the the poem really added to that for me. And then one example, we've I don't want to just shit on Bloodline all the time. But <laughs> that was a bad voiceover. Sorry, Kyle Chandler. That I love you. <laughs> I, honestly, I think the voiceover on Jessica Jones is not great. Veronica Mars did it better. Much better. Uh, I think that I hard zombie, boiled thing. It's tough. Yeah, I also think oftentimes the things, and we talked about this at the Jessica Jones episode. Uh, oftentimes, the things that Jessica Jones is saying in her voiceover are simply not worth articulating. I think I Zombie does a pretty good job. It's hard because. I think iZombie will always suffer from just not being Veronica Mars. And I think it's easy to... F- <laughs> and it's the same creator. Yeah, it's the same creator. It has a very similar tone. It has a sort of similar, like, our Rye leading lady is sardonic and she's an outsider and she's really smart. And, and and she has, like, a really cool crew of people that she's assembled that are, like, good people that you might not expect to be good people. And, you know, it's it's they're, they're very similar shows. And it's hard to be like, well, you're simply not Kristen Bell, right? And that's that's right. a really unfair standard <laughs> to hold yeah, me to. Honestly, who is? She's not Rachem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so cute. My heart is exploding. <laughs> that made me so happy. <laughs> but I think the voiceover on iZombie is pretty good, too. <laughs> so here's my, here's my list of the current shows. Um, I like Mr. Robot the best. I've praised that before. I just think it's great. Um, and a little bit recently, Enlightened. Enlightened mm. had a great oh, voice yeah. of narration, and it was almost like a, a show within the show. Her voice is like a dream. Like, just yeah. she has the most beautiful, like. It's great. Oh. It's great. And also, just the way that they were very, very strict about when they use that. Like, that was only to take us into her delusional mind mm-hmm. and to articulate the world as she sees it. And then the rest of the show is how the world sees her. So that was like a beautiful split 
I also have a soft spot for the Wonder Years, which has been so imitated and strip-mined that that I think people maybe retroactively are hard on the Wonder Years for, for doing it. They did it really, really well, that kind of wistful, knowing kind of thing. And um, I think the Goldbergs is a great sardonic variation of that. And it's it's funny because it's set you know, 20 years ago in the 80s, and mm-hmm. the Wonder Years was 20 years ago in the 60s, so it <laughs> seems only logical that they would go to that well again. Arrested Development, I will never not laugh at the sound of Ron Howard's voice describing other people's actions. <laughs> it's just like the narration itself is great, this third-person narration, but also because it's Ron Howard, who was Richie, he was Opie, and, and now he's, you know, narrating <laughs> the misadventures of this ridiculous family. And then here's a wild card for you, SpongeBob. The narrator on SpongeBob, just because he appears so infrequently that you forget there's a narrator, which means that every time you hear that voice going, you know, full hours later, it's it's funny. Like, you know, because I've seen every episode of that show probably multiple times, and I always forget when the narrator appears, which tells me (laughs) that they're doing it right. And and, And often it's like a self reflexive narration, you know, like so much later that the narrator got tired and went home, you know, like that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Rocky and Bullwinkle actually did it too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think My So-Called Life is another really strong example. Talking about Enlightened made me think about one of my favorite things on shows with voiceovers is when the non-main character has the episode. That's like my favorite subset of show, right? That, that mm-hmm. genre of... I'm thinking of the episode where in season one we see an episode about her mom. Mm-hmm. Like, sort of, and in season two we amazing. have the episode driven by Luke Wilson's character. And you're, it's just like when it starts up and you hear that other voice. It's I think, you know, on My So-Called Life, I think, uh, the Brian Krakow narrated episode. I was just going to mention that. Yeah. That's a great one. That's it's a so masterpiece. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. I think that's really special. And sometimes we hear Danielle's voiceover too, the younger sister. That's really special. And I think Grey's Anatomy used to use this to better mm. effect. It doesn't. I don't think the voiceover in Grey's Anatomy adds very much anymore. But it used to add. It used to be a little bit more important to the show. And I remember feeling psyched when it was like, "Ooh, it's a Christina one." Like that feeling, like a a fun change. Well, here's another one that I don't think has ever really been appreciated for how well it did narration was MASH. MASH had many, many episodes where people were writing letters home or reading letters from home, and the reading of the letter or the writing of the letter became what I call stealth voiceover. Yeah. Like, it technically wasn't, like, classic voiceover. It was, you know, it sort of wove in and out, and, it, and in some cases it would begin with, you know, you're in their headspace, but then the letter re- it plays out over images of other characters who really have no direct relation to what's being described in the letter. It was great. If we're going to use that model of the the letter home, I feel like Dear Louise on Sports Night is a really good oh, yeah. example of that. I mean, that has a total, like, radar feel, right? Like, yes. uh, not the magazine, uh, radar the character from MASH. Like, that sort of, like, letter home, and it's, like, trying to put a good spin on stuff, but, like, not great things are happening. Oh, my God. I just thought of one. Felicity. Oh, Felicity. Janine Garofalo. Yeah. That was I, I love tapes from Sally, and I was so sad when they stopped, when she stopped getting them. <laughs> That's really good. I mean, I think Felicity also has, so in addition to the voiceover, has that arc where they're making the documentary, and so they're just talking to the camera so much that I oh, think yeah. eventually mm-hmm. Felicity sort of, it was difficult because the characters on the show are frequently not articulate, and then we see them be extremely articulate in their sort of privacy. Yeah. And I love Felicity, but I think that's a, a tough needle to thread. Yeah. You know, especially, like... I don't know. I just feel like my little brother had my favorite critique of that show of all time. He was like five or six, and he's like, Ugh, I can hear them breathing. <laughs> like, yeah, that's kind of the show. Well, parenthetically, because it's not related to television, um, one of my favorite moments in the history of voiceover is um, 
Dogtown and Z-Boys, the documentary, which is narrated by Sean Penn, who is a perfect person to narrate a documentary about skaters in Southern California. <laughs> but there's actually a moment on the voiceover narration where you hear Sean Penn interrupt himself to take a drag from his cigarette and exhale, and they, le- <laughs> and they left it in the movie. They left it in the movie. I nice. love that. But I also I want to mention one more bit of voiceover that's very dear to me, which is... Um, the letter that Seth Bullock reads to his wife oh. when he's crossing the camp. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And it's and it's and it comes out of nowhere. And you hear him essentially listing. It really amounts to a list of promises or pledges that he's going to make to this person who uh, whose trust has already been violated by that point in the story. And it plays out over an image of him walking slowly across the camp. Man, if you were playing the Vulture TV podcast drinking game of every time marketer Matt mentions Deadwood drink, this is going to be a tough episode for <laughs> you. Shit face 24-7. Sorry, this is a tough one. And I feel like we can't not mention Sex and the City, which... Oh. Yes. yes. I didn't always love their... You couldn't help but wonder. Yeah. <laughs> Do a we little see this voiceover? Too, yeah. yeah. Well, but you know, it's funny. It's better her, than her speaking to the camera in season one. <laughs> well, that's true. But her, her, her voiceover was often disparaged for being too cute, too simplistic, too whatever. But I never minded it too much because when I heard it, it's like I thought, yes, she would be very, very successful at what she does because she can describe situations in a way that you can sort of hold them in your hand. You know, like mm-hmm. that. It's a very, very simple way that she would put things. And of course, a lot of times you smack your forehead and go, "Well, duh, of course it's that way." But she, there she some, had a voice. She had a very right. distinctive oh, voice. Oh, yeah, I think that's a terrific voiceover. And I think, you know, it really drives out. Like, so what does Carrie sound like to herself, mm. right? And it's important in the context of that show that she is not always a clear judge of her own deal. Right? That's an important part of understanding her character. It's the way she sees herself is not necessarily accurate and not necessarily the way other people see her. And that cleverness is sometimes good and sometimes bad. And, and and sometimes you're like, ooh, that was clever. And sometimes you're like, oh, clever. And there were <laughs> many what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and there were many points in the story where I wouldn't call her narration unreliable exactly, but there were many points where she would present a particular view of what was going on in the episode only to have it contradicted by the episode. Yeah. You know, which is a, a sophisticated way to use that. All right. So we have one question before we go, which is a heavy one, and it's one we've wanted to answer for a while, and we're doing it. This is a question from Jackie. I try to be thoughtful in my consumption of pop culture, and in general, I prefer things on my TV screen to be an escape from reality. But lately, I've been finding more and more negativity creeping into my entertainment. For example, I fell in love with Empire last season. About halfway through, I found out Terrence Howard's dubious past with the woman in his life, and it became pretty tough to watch any scene with him since. I keep watching because I think the show is so well made, but I'm conflicted about supporting it. I haven't watched a Woody Allen movie in a while because I can't really reconcile my feelings with him as a person, with my appreciation of his art. Of course, there's Bill Cosby's rape scandals, and this is making people completely change their perception of a person who used to be one of the most lovable guys on TV. There's enough garbage in the world I can't control, so I'm trying to at least weed out some of the stuff I can. My question would be, how do you support and appreciate art when you do not morally support the people involved? Where do you draw the line? Is it possible to do? I don't think there's an answer, but I would appreciate some perspective as I whittle down my watch lists. Mm. That is heavy. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a question no one has really been able to answer because it's not no. a question with a black and white answer but wh- no and you, i find i find well yeah. i just find that it's a it's an area where to merely engage with the construction of a set of rules for this thing is to be is to reveal your own hypocrisy 
I've never had a conversation about this with anyone, no matter how smart and consistent they are, where they don't sound like a hypocrite when they're arguing why they're boycotting certain people and not others. And I will just say, I do not judge anyone for any reason who decides that they don't want to support a particular artist. Everybody has their own reasons for doing it. But I don't buy the argument that I'm going to punish this person for their immorality by taking money out of their pocket. Because when you do that, you're also taking money out of the pockets of all these other people who worked on the film or the television show who presumably aren't monsters. So, you know, I'm not sure what kind of a statement is being made there. I think just simply being uncomfortable with this person based on what you know about them is plenty. It's yeah. plenty. I mean, and I'm it sure... doesn't have to be justified in any other way. I'm sure there are a lot of people who aren't able to watch Bill Cosby anymore. Like you don't, I can't. you can't enjoy watching him be funny because it just isn't. It's never going to be funny anymore. My son doesn't know about Bill Cosby, and and you know I introduced him to Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids when he was a little kid, and so he sometimes will go, you know, just to joke because he it used to make me laugh. You know, hey, 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 mm-hmm. and now he says that to me, and I'm like. <laughs> you know, and like I don't want to tell him why. It's like why doesn't Dad find that funny anymore? Oh, and at some gosh. point, you know, he'll discover it on her own, or we'll have to have that conversation. Yeah. But Man. yeah, it sucks, and it really sucks that Bill Cosby. The revelations about Bill Cosby, like over and above the human damage that he caused, he basically made this great swath of entertaining and important popular culture radioactive. Radioactive, like the Cosby Show, I Spy, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kid. All of his, all of his specials and his albums are contaminated. They're like they're radioactive now. That's yeah. that's like it's like a crime against culture. In addition to being a crime, it's horrible. So this is like, oh, can you separate the art from the artist? And I think it's one of those things where it's like you may do that, but you're not obligated to do that. And I think there's plenty of, you know, I would never want to watch a movie made by this person. And I think those are totally valid reasons not to want to watch a movie or a TV show. And I think that, like, I'm not boycotting them to take money out of someone's pocket. I'm boycotting them because I'm tired of listening to rapists. Right. Right? Like, oh, I guess this would... Like, I'm not obligated to financially support all things. And many of the shows I would watch or not watch, I'm not directly funneling money to or from anyone. It's a matter of, like, oh, you know what? Like, I live in a society that prioritizes certain kinds of stories already, and I just don't need to be inputting more ideas from somebody that I think is a child molester. And that's a good enough reason, right? It's like, oh, I guess it's a good song, but I have this thing where after you rape one kid, I'm just not interested in your music anymore. <laughs> and like, Are we talking about Michael Jackson? I was talking about R. Kelly, but okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, and I mean, I think you're right. We draw our own lines the same we do with everything else in our lives. You might decide you don't want to eat meat, but you still want to eat fish. And you might, you know, like, yeah. you just kind of create your own guidelines with what you are comfortable with. I do find it interesting, and I'm not putting scare quotes around the word interesting, genuinely interesting that I've talked to a number of people who will not watch a Woody Allen film ever again because of the allegations against him for 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 molesting Dylan but they love Michael Jackson and yes I know Michael Jackson is dead but the allegations about him were out at the time you know when he was alive everybody knew it it was all over the place there was you couldn't get away from it and people continued to listen to his music and have a soft spot for him and I wonder how you reconcile that I wonder how you reconcile like why do we why are we so sickened by a particular popular artist that we cannot get anywhere near their work without wanting to throw up? And other people who have done similar things, we we can compartmentalize it. I, it's, it's a mystery to me. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I don't mean that to be judgmental. I really don't. I, it's a mystery to I, me. I mean, I think with Bill Cosby, like I remember 
when um, Woody Allen came into the conversation again. I forget where. Somewhere wrote an essay that was like, hey, guys, Bill Cosby has been doing this terrible shit for years. And it like people read it in the moment, but then they forgot about it. And it wasn't until like it was repeated, you know, and we more women came out and, it, you know, it just it had to be bored into this point where you couldn't ignore it. It was in your face all the time. And I think I think that's sadly what it takes. Like, that's what the movie Spotlight kind of gets at in a way, too. Yeah. Like, it's not until you decide to kind of force people to look at it that they necessarily will want to. I got to admit, I have a problem watching Terrence Howard on Empire. I have, I have a serious problem, like, watching an actor or listening to a singer who I know has been involved in domestic violence of some kind. Especially when they're playing a character who's supposed to be thought of as basically a loving person. And if it were not my job to watch Empire, I think I would maybe think about not watching it, honestly. As good a show as that is, it's quite a hurdle for me to get over. And, you know, I'll get over it because it's part of the job. Um, But at the same time, I'm in the process of reading a really marvelous biography of Norman Mailer as well as a collection of his letters. And I love Mailer. And Mailer actually stabbed his wife. Stabbed his wife. You know, and again, Mailer's dead now. I guess that makes it okay for me to read Norman Mailer. I'm a hypocrite. Something for especially our letter writer to consider is like there's still so much good TV that is made by people who haven't been accused of domestic violence and rape. And like, you know, I I don't think it's one of those things where like, well, everybody does something bad. It's like, I guess, but there's a difference between like... Oh, have I like been mean to people? Yeah, have I raped anybody? No, I have not. Like there are distinctions here and I think you can seek out shows made by people and starring people who are like relatively untarnished well, by but, this. Yeah, like, but it's so not... we also have to add the caveat that uh, you know, the phrase as far as we know. Right. That's another thing. It's like there are there are probably a whole lot of people out there who have done all kinds of horrible shit, and we just don't know about it. Yeah, but I don't think that's like, well, I guess I can't ever know. I might as well watch all of this stuff. Like, I think you can say, like, I'm going to seek out things that are made by, like, people. And, yes, sometimes we're wrong. And, and people whose who artistry would have thought Bill, trust... Who would have thought Bill Cosby? Who would have thought, you know, until this, until this started coming out a few years ago? It's unreal. And it's a big part of it is the image that he presented of himself. And a big part of it is that people thought it because women were coming forward with this information many years ago, not just a few years ago. And we live in a society that does not believe women about anything, frankly, but particularly about being the victims of sexual assault. So that kind of like throwing up of hands of like, well, what are you going to do? It's like, well, a bunch of things. And like, this is not an area where 100 percent is an A. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's not you can't ever get to a point where it's like, I simply have never consumed anything, never watched anything, participated in anything that has in any way coincided with somebody who is vile. Right. Like, that's not really on the table. Certainly, if you've ever been to, I don't know, a sporting event, you probably like like there's plenty of instances in our society when people who have done really terrible things are still valorized and put up as as, you know, objects of spectacle and and who make things that you might like. But I think it's worth saying to yourself, like, I'm actually not interested in consuming this stuff and I'm not going to be mad at myself or second guess that. I'm going to say I'm going to spend my time consuming things that aren't made by convicted rapists. Mike Tyson has a show. That's what I was going to say. Mike Tyson has a show. He has a show and there's not been a point since I have been, you know, a professional journalist when Mike Tyson hasn't had a show of some kind. You know, like since he's been out of boxing, he's he's always, he's you know, he had a one-man stage show at one point. 
and people paid money for that and we and somehow we compartmentalized that like not just the not just the rape conviction but the assaults the various assaults that occurred outside of the ring and we're and apparently uh, a lot of people enough people are okay with that to make him a viable commercial frontman for a piece of entertainment to be clear the convicted rapist i was referring to is exactly mike tyson yeah. and you know he shaved a jonas brothers head on stage at like the teen choice awards or kids choice awards like a couple years ago it's like how many times would mike tyson have to be convicted of rape before he wouldn't be in a neil patrick harris opening number of the tonys and well, the answer is more than one how many times like he's he's like on like the, in, andy cohen's like tweeting photos of them like giving each other piggybacks and it's like okay yeah. so how many times would he have to be convicted of rape before you're like you know what you're not welcome on my serious radio show or whatever like it's staggering to me. I got like a action figure in the mail from Adult Swim and it's like, this is a rapist. He's other things too, but I'm actually not interested in watching a jokey cartoon about him. Like well, I'm just not. Yeah. And, and again, here we get into this realm of consistency, hypocrisy and all that other stuff. Like I've had many moments where I see somebody chastising me for praising the films of Woody Allen. And then a couple of days later, I see a picture of Mike Tyson in their timeline with a, with no irony at all, no self-awareness at all. And I think, like, how do you do this? How do you manage this? It's impossible. But try. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. yeah, don't hold yourself to, like, oh, unless I've met an unimpeachable standard, it's simply not worth doing. I think leading an ethical life is an ongoing process, and you're allowed to reassess and decide, you know what, I used to watch these movies, and I'm not interested in watching them anymore. Or frankly, like, yes, I think it's an important piece of pop culture knowledge, and I'm glad I've acquired it. But going forward, I'm not interested in, in delving deeper into this. Like, like, ethics is a process, and having a life that you, like— the art you consume is important to you. That's an ongoing idea and set of ideas. And I don't think the setting, like, these are my hard and fast rules makes sense. But I think saying, like, I will use some rules most of the time because it's important to me to not be somebody participating in things I hate. Like, that's a good idea. You should have that. Before we move on, here's a quick word from our sponsors. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by See It. How often do your friends tell you about new shows to watch? And sure, you completely intend to watch them, but when you're on the couch with the remote, you forget. Introducing See It, your answer to keeping track of all your shows. It's free, and you can start adding shows to your personal watch list today by going to see.it slash vulture. The best part is, all you have to do is text a show name, like Fargo, to See It at 73348, and it will be instantly added to your watch list. And come showtime, See It is there for you. You can even get a text reminder. Visit see.it slash vulture or text the name of a show to see it at 73348 and discover the ultimate way to remember all your favorite TV shows and collect them in one place. Start your watch list today. The Nick, Cinemax's original series about a hospital in turn of the century in New York, was in limbo when we talked to its star. Hopefully we'll get some idea of whether the show or he will be back. Clive Owen's long and varied film career includes Croupier, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, Sin City, Inside Man, Children of Men, Hemingway and Gellhorn, and lots, lots more. It's really great to have him here with us. Thank you. Well, that was the most Thackeray final scene <laughs> that I can imagine him performing surgery on himself. I think we maybe reached peak Thackeray. Can you can you talk a little bit about that scene? <laughs> I like that phrase, peak Thackeray. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was an idea that was that was muted right at the beginning um, when we first started thinking about where to take season two. Really, and I, I, Stephen and the writers came up with it, and I loved it. Idea, I thought it was genius. Before I even shot any scene as Thackeray, I went to Doctor Burns, our medical expert's place, and he has this archive of incredible photographs 
um, from the turn of the century. A few of the photographs he showed me were of doctors operating on themselves with clamps hanging off their bodies, teaching students some operations. So there was a group of people sitting around watching, and there was a doctor standing there with his insides open, and he was performing an operation on himself. So, you know, the, the brilliant thing is, is that like everything else in the show, it was very well researched and totally, you know, that was something that was going on at that time. So this is a real, this is not a, a fantastic dramatic invention. This actually happened. That's even more amazing to me. No, there, there are doctors that, would, that did this, that operated on themselves in front of people, yeah. So in the, in the filming of that scene, were, were those your hands that we saw in the close-ups? Yeah, it's funny, you know, in an awful lot of the operations, when we first started this show, I was absolutely convinced that Stephen would get genius doctor hand doubles in for us and sort of do these operations. And he so resisted that. And all he did is shoot it in a very kind of tasteful way and always made sure that we looked like we knew what we were doing and that you didn't see enough of the specific details in the operations. But he preferred to use what was happening in the room more than than trying to fake anything afterwards and uh and so it was just we got as familiar and as good as we could at whatever it is we had to do and then he would shoot it in a very kind of selective tasteful way were you were you actually cutting the i guess they were probably pig intestines or something at the same time that you're acting in the scene or did he at least uh, call cut and let you do the hand stuff later no, it was pretty much like we did an awful lot of the show. It was, you know, we we did it in situ as is, you know. That was, <laughs> you know, so we would shoot me cutting myself open, and that was the scene. It wasn't just a, a separate, you know, shot of a of a hand kind of thing. We did everything as, as is, and we shot. You know, he shot it the way he wanted to shoot it. Can you talk a little bit about the physical and vocal choices that you made in your performance this season? Because you go from Thackeray, basically, let's say Thackeray stoned, for purposes of simplicity, to Thackeray sober, (laughs) and then back to Thackeray stoned again. It seems like your movements are more deliberate and maybe your posture is different. I mean, I can't describe exactly what you did, but it seemed like you were doing something. Because when you come back in and you're... At the end, in, that, in the finale, when you're hopped up again, all of a sudden I go, oh, that's the old Thackeray. No, that's good. It's, uh, yeah, you, it's, um, I'm glad you noticed that because there is a difference. You know, he's, for a lot of this season, he's, he's speedballing and he's taking heroin. It's, you know, the mixture of heroin and cocaine is very different from the, the, you know, the, the, the drive of just cocaine. In the first season, he was a pure sort of cocaine addict and it did change in this season and then and as you say stoned is probably you know he is more stoned in some ways in season two because of the combination of the drugs he's taken and i had to sort of take that on board really were there practices or anything for these surgeries i mean i know you have a medical advisor on the set don't you and do you have other people talking to you about the historical aspects like monitoring the language the rituals the social rituals things like that no i mean all of that is the the, the language has all been ironed out before we get into the room you know the, the scripts are so thorough and they've been worked on and they would have already been through dr burns so he could give his comments about the, the, the you know the, the making sure the medical terms are right and that you know that the structure and the rhythm of the scene was right and then those scenes we literally come in we know what's required and we talk through how to sort of plot our way through it. And as we sort of, Dr. Burns is there, you know, at, at my side any, through any operation. So I can just, he could just say, this is what you would do now. This is, and of course, with all those medical scenes, the rhythm of the scene is dictated by what the operation is. Because, you know, once you cut somebody open, the pace changes and the rhythm changes. And 
you kind of work that rhythm out and Stephen is watching very carefully and then at some point Stephen begins to uh, attack the scene and, and, and choose a way of, of shooting it. Have you ever played a character continuously for 20 hours over the span of two seasons before, a lead character? No, no. What does that feel like as an actor? How is that different from from doing a play or doing a movie where it's more self-contained? Do you do you carry the guy home with you more, or do, is it just no difference? There's just more shooting. I think it's um, you know there's more time. The beauty of something like this is you can plot. You know, I can plot through because we had all the scripts and they were you know pretty much ready to go scripts. They were would already been in tune. You got all ten hours in front of you before you shoot anything, and it just means that. The calibration of the journey, you know, you can you can really see that visually before you even begin, and that is a beauty, you know, as an actor. So, you know, I can plot my way through it. It's not like, you know, I know on some television shows the scripts are being written as you're moving through it, and you have to think on your feet and be very quick and adapt and 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 and, and do everything at a pace. Whereas with this, there is there was time to sit there and look at the whole arc and and and, and really think about it and try and you know, plot your way through it, you know, before you even began shooting. A lot happened this season, and the way that we leave the story, we've got Captain Robertson is dead, he jumps out of a burning building, we still don't know who set the fire, I guess Cornelius' brother Henry admits he had Spate killed to protect the family fortunes. There's like five million things going on in this, but when you look at the season as a whole, what do you feel that it's about at its base? Did you have any thoughts on this? Did you talk about it with any of the other cast members, like when you try to make sense of it all? No, but what I think that the sort of, you know, separated this season from the, the first season is that, you know, that we put an awful lot of groundwork in, in terms of establishing characters, and in terms of establishing a world, and we created something pretty ambitious, I think, in terms of, you know, a period drama and the, the way that Stephen approached it and, and, and directed it. And it meant that with season two, that we, we'd done a lot of the groundwork, so we could hit the ground running, and we went much more outside of the hospital and it's much more of a kind of palette of looking at all kinds of aspects of what life might have been like at this time and sort of spreading away from the hospital and into people's lives. And, you know, it just, it's a much broader, bigger, richer world in a way. Do you feel uh, that you had to orient yourself differently? You, this is not the first time you played a character from another era, but do, do you feel that you have to enter into a different mindset when you're playing somebody from another time? Um, I think that it's a very dangerous thing to, to, to adopt an acting style if you're playing somebody from a different time. I think, again, one of the strengths of this show is that, uh, you know, I felt it when I read it and I felt it when I saw it and, and saw all the characters, is that it's a living, breathing thing. People, you know, there's a sometimes there's a way of people can play period dramas where everything becomes very kind of honed and kind of almost unreal. And, you know, the one thing about this show is it, it felt visceral and real and vibrant and that people were living and that life was dangerous. And so, I mean, there is obviously your help to know that the language is slightly different and that has some form to it. But, you know, I, I, I don't think it's the right thing to adopt an acting style if you're playing period. I just think... You know, if it's well written and well directed, you're you're given a lot of support that that, that sort of creates the the, the ambience of the time, really.
What are some of your favorite moments to play as Thackeray, some of the most satisfying or, or perhaps challenging moments, moments where you felt, ah, yes, this is what it's all about? Well, there's no question that the, you know, the very last scene, the, you know, the one of the first scenes that, you know, after, you know, you see him sort of, you know, inject himself in his toes and then turn up and start doing an operation. Those scenes which, you know, are kind of, they're kind of, there's a, you know, a, a drive to them. There's, they're wild, they're original, they're daring. It's, it's the more daring stuff was the real fun stuff to play. Very challenging. And, you, you know, you, you want to make sure that you, you do them well and do them properly. But the, the beauty of playing Thackeray is that he, he was, he's wild and unpredictable and complex. And that, that's a joy to play, you know, because never just one thing going on. Do you feel that you learned anything from playing this guy or that you're going to take anything away from it? No, only that there was something about, you know, the, the, the multi-layeredness of Thackeray, the fact that he was so complex. It was a, you know, it was a joy to do that as an actor and, that, you know, the, the, the richness of the character and just thinking about that when maybe playing other characters that, you know, it's always, always more interesting to have more than one thing going on. I mean, acting ultimately is about, is about subtext and conflict, you know, if, that's, for me, when it's at its most challenging and its most fun, is when things aren't straightforward. That there's some conflict that's being dealt with here, and that, you know, that there is a subtext. It's not just what's being said that's going on. And Thackeray was a, you know, a really intense, visceral version of that. Really. Do you look forward to playing John Thackeray again? Is that something that might happen? Is the Nick coming back? Do we know these things? I, I always signed on to do to do two seasons. It was always a two season journey for me, and. You know, I, I don't know if there is a, you know, possibility that Stephen the writers might want to take it further, but I, I always sign on just to do it too. I really uh, hope there is a third, and I appreciate your coming on to talk to us. Thanks a lot. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. So as we're gearing up for 2016, if you are making any TV resolutions, we would love to hear what you're doing, whether it's you're finally going to watch a long lost show or you're finally going to get show divorced from something or you're going to <laughs> stop watching a show with one person or whatever if you have any tv resolutions going into the 2016 year we would love to hear what they are the vulture tv podcast is produced by sam dingman and sarah abdurrahman thanks also to laura mayer and andy bowers the vulture tv podcast is part of the panoply network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com panoply i'm gazelle Mommy, and you can find me on twitter at gazellephant I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. 